coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, and a happy hump day to you. So there are so many things I could talk about today, but I decided I want to focus on something that I think is super Georgia-specific. And I know I talk a lot about a lot of things that are Georgia specific, but between the Merrick Garland appearance before the House Judiciary Committee, and I know Jim Jordan had to have his little dog and pony show moment. The fix is in. The fix is in. I, I mean, we we can talk about that maybe later if I decide to. But I, I really want to focus on local and regional, uh, you know, in earnest today because I think there are some stories that often go overlooked that warrant some attention from somewhere, so let's give it to uh, those that deserve it. Fort Valley State University is a state and land-grant university and part of the university system of Georgia. And federal officials say that the state of Georgia basically owes Fort Valley State University $600 million. Now, I don't expect that Fort Valley State University is just going to get a $600 million check, but they did send out letter uh, a letter to the governor of Georgia and by the way, 14 other states, and they're all predictable, <laughs> 14 other states where federal funding was shortchanging historically black colleges and universities. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona and Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack sent Brian Kemp and 15 other governors, so it was 16 total, I apologize. Anyway, they all got letters on Monday highlighting what were described as, quote, an equitable funding of land-grant HBCUs. The letter that Brian Kemp acknowledges he received and told reporters nothing else who asked reads, Dear Governor Kemp, as we work toward expanding America's position as a world leader, it is our shared goal to produce the best and brightest talent that any country has to offer. We know that you and other Governors around the country are deeply focused on and committed to education as evidenced by the significant portion of state budgets allocated to education spending. We also know you share the Biden-Harris administration's commitment to the goal of excellence in education for all students. Ooh, that's got to suck to read that if you're a Republican, right? Uh, it is through the opportunities provided to our students that we will be able to innovate beyond what we thought was possible just a few years ago and even today. Historically, black colleges and universities, or HBCUs, tribal colleges and universities, and minority-serving institutions make innumerable contributions to our country through the research produced by their facility, achievements of their students and alumni, and services that they provide to the immediate community. As noted in the HBCU Partners Act, while HBCUs, including 1890 land-grant institutions, represent 3% of post-secondary institutions, they enroll about 10% of all black college students. Furthermore, these institutions generate close to $15 billion in economic impact and over 134,000 jobs annually in the local and regional economies they serve. To ensure we are able to compete at a high level and develop the strong workforce that will propel this country into the future, generate the next wave of job creators, and fuel our economy, it is imperative that high-quality educational opportunities are available to all students. The Second Moral Act of 1890 
required that states choosing to open a second land-grant institution to serve black students provide an equitable distribution of funds between their 1862 and 1890 land-grant institutions. Fort Valley State University, the 1890 land-grant institution in your state, while producing extraordinary graduates that contribute greatly to the state's economy and the fabric of our nation, has not been able to advance in ways that are on par with University of Georgia, the original Morrill Act of 1862 land-grant institution in your state, in large part due to unbalanced funding. The long-standing and ongoing underinvestment in Fort Valley State University disadvantages the students, faculty, and community that the institution serves. Furthermore, it may contribute to a lack of economic activity that would ultimately benefit Georgia. It is our hope that we can work together to make this institution whole after decades of being underfunded. Using readily available data from the National Center for Educational Statistics, or the NCES, Integrated Post-Secondary Education Survey, or IPEDS, that ranged from 1987 to 2020. So they're not going back to 1890. They're just taking a snapshot of 33 years, from 1987 to 2020. Back to the letter. We calculated the amount that these institutions would have received if their state funding per student were equal to that of 1862 institutions. Unequitable funding of the 1890 institution in your state has caused a severe financial gap in the last 30 years alone. An additional $603,156,480 would have been available for the university. These funds could have supported infrastructure and student services and would have better positioned the university to compete for research grants. Fort Valley State University has been able to make remarkable strides and would be much stronger and better positioned to serve its students, your state, and the nation if made whole with respect to this funding gap. In recent years, some states have begun addressing this issue. In some instances, legislatures have provided significant state allocations. In others, students and alumni have formed coalitions to pursue court orders that ultimately required states to allocate remedial funding. This is a situation that clearly predates all of us. However, it is a problem that we can work together to solve. In fact, it is our hope that we can collaborate to avoid burdensome and costly litigation that has occurred in several states. It's a shot across the bow. Given the large amount of state funding that is owed to Fort Valley State University, it would be ambitious to address the funding disparity over the course of several years in the state budget. It might very well be your desire to do so, which we wholeheartedly support. Yet, if an ambitious timetable is not a possibility, and it is, we suggest a combination of a substantial state allocation toward the 1890 deficit combined with a forward-looking budget commitment for a two-to-one match of federal land-grant funding for these institutions in order to bring parity to funding levels. We want to make abundantly clear that it is not necessary to reduce funding to other institutions, nor make a reduction in general fund allocations to Fort Valley State University in addressing these disparities. They know Republicans. We are at an inflection point that will determine our place in the world as leaders. We need to solidify our country as the top producer of talent and innovation, demonstrating to the global community that nothing can beat American ingenuity. 
The letter continues, The state that serves as our nation's economic engine for the next generation is sure to be one that fully realizes all its assets and is committed to ensuring that opportunity is equally distributed. Given the career opportunities that will be available due to recent bipartisan federal investments for key industries, strengthening these universities to provide tomorrow's workforce will enhance your state's economic viability. The Department of Education and Agriculture, working with your state budget office, would welcome hosting a workshop to fully examine the funding data that we shared in this letter. We are committed to working with you to bring balance to the state investments in institutions that have been severely underfunded through the years. Signed sincerely, Miguel Cardona from the U.S. Department of Education and Secretary of Agriculture, Thomas Vilsack. Friends, when you hear talk of reparations from African-American leaders, many on the left, this is but a blip, a tiny speck of dust off the boulder that exists when it comes to inequities. And, and for the record, I want to read for you the states, the 16 states, I think it was 16 total, right, that all got this letter. They're not going to surprise you. They are Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, of course, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maryland, Mississippi, Missouri, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee, Texas, Virginia, West Virginia, North Carolina. Did I leave anybody out? What do those states all, most all have in common, I believe, save for Maryland and West Virginia? And I guess Oklahoma didn't quite make the cut because they weren't quite ready to join the secession movement. Yeah. You guessed it. Now, while Governor Brian Kemp is enjoying the spoils of the gas tax, we all are. Actually, I just filled up today. Did it for under 50 bucks. I mean, that's nice. It's I, Again, I posited that the gas tax is probably going to save me about $5 a tank. Fine. You know, no disrespect to that whatsoever. It's certainly, I don't know what I'll do with that $5, but maybe I'll hit fast food on the way home instead. (laughs) I don't know. But I will say this. Well, Governor Brian Kemp, realizing we have a budget surplus, says, oh, well, let's just do a tax rebate. There are real needs that the state has long neglected to meet that the governor could start meeting. Medicaid expansion came to mind, of course. <laughs> eh, can't do that. This rift in funding for Fort Valley State University, totaling more than $600 million. We could have started chipping away at that. We could have done student loan forgiveness. How about student loan forgiveness for those who attended Fort Valley State University in that 30-year, that 33-year period, I believe it was, 87 to 2020. Huh? Yeah? I mean, wouldn't that be kind of cool? Since we've got a budget surplus and since we need to make good on that $600 million deficit that the state let rack up in equitable funding that they are required by law to produce. But hey, I say $5 in gas today. 
Thank you, Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp's office did release a statement, according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, it read, The governor has and will continue to support Georgia's HBCU institutions and the contributions they are making to prepare the next generation to lead the economy of tomorrow. That, according to his press secretary, Garrison Douglas, uh, just through a release statement, he then uh, asked for reporters to hit up the University System of Georgia for more specific details or questions about this disparity in funding. For its part, the university system said that it will work to collect data and facts and will respond to the letter. And y'all just think, this is just a snapshot from 1987 to 2020. Can you even begin to imagine what the disparity in funding was like from 1895 when Fort Valley State was established through 1986? We'll include a link to that letter to Governor Kemp and the 15 other governors, as well as the AJC article in today's show notes at ronshowatl.com. More after this on the America One Radio, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to the Ron Show for Wednesday. So much outrage from the right over what people who serve in the U.S. Senate are going to wear. How long ago was this? That Nine years ago? While The Daily Show isn't filming, of course, because of the writers and actors strike, their social media folks reminded us just a few weeks ago that this was just nine years ago. The president came out addressing reporters on Thursday, and he was wearing this tan suit. Tan suit. President Obama's decision to wear a light tan suit at yesterday's news conference. He was wearing a tan suit. Light tan suit. I I think it was shocking to a lot of people. Is this an effort to make him look warmer? Lou Dobbs. Oh, my God. Y'all, Fox News was apoplectic about a tan suit. Nine years ago. There's no way I think any of us can excuse what the president did yesterday. I mean, (laughs) and then for him to walk out. I'm not trying to be trivial here, but Uh, in a light suit... Uh, like tan suit. Also known as tan gate. Tan suit and how the tan suit made him look unpresidential. <laughs> Whoever talked him into going into a tan suit, they're so desperate because of these low poll numbers, they're willing to do anything. <laughs> oh, man. The tan suit made him look unpresidential. Mm. Yep. Fox News, right-wing media, went berserk over a tan suit. And now... Because the U.S. Senate has a senator who had a stroke, we all know, shortly before or shortly after launching his Senate campaign. And even that was something of a concern on the campaign trail. The man continues to do his job. He shows up for votes. He literally has had to just stick his head in the door to vote or give a thumbs up or thumbs down on something because the Senate sergeant at arms has been enforcing an informal dress code. Well, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said, okay, we're going to stop doing that. And I'm telling you, the outrage on the right is absolutely bonkers. Susan Collins now saying she's going to wear a bikini. I mean, you do you, Susan. Tommy Tuberville, Tuberville, the former football coach who is now the Alabama senator, the one holding up all the military hierarchy appointments, he is ticked off big time, he said. Said that he's going to start wearing a coaching outfit during his next floor appearance. 
You got people walking around in shorts. That don't fly with me, he said. I mean, why not, Senator Tuberville? Play dress up. You should actually play dress up. You're dressing up as a senator now. Little American flag pin right there on your lapel. Mm. Look just like a senator. Look just like a patriot. Except for the whole, like, military appointment blockade you're doing. I mean, look, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I'm all for casual every day on the U.S. Senate floor. But Senator Fetterman has some issues that he's having to overcome that prevent him from dressing in a suit and tie all the time. O- okay, it is what it is. It's a medical thing, right? It, I, w- what are you going to do? We would think it abhorrent by today's standards if we learned that back in the day when Senator so-and-so from Connecticut showed up on the Senate floor without his powdery white wig on, that the others were like, how dare he? Well, he had a skin issue and his scalp was itchy, and so he said, I'm not going to wear a wig anymore. It's kind of silly anyway, right? I'm not saying that dressing in a suit is silly, but I am saying that we have changed our norms, not just in the Senate chamber or the House chamber, or God, the, the tan suit, <laughs> the tan suit, man, that, good Lord. I'm just saying that, like, every once in a while, it's okay to make some allowances for those who need allowances made. We do that throughout our society anyway, right? Eric Erickson tweeted a photo of Stephen Hawking visiting with President Barack Obama and made the point that, well, if Stephen Hawking can put on a suit, see, actually, he didn't. Stephen Hawking didn't put on a suit, and that was a special occasion that Dr. Stephen Hawking decided he wanted a suit put on him. But five days a week while the Senate's in session, can the man just not work from his office? In fact, it's 2023. How many of us even go to the office every day anyway? Why is the U.S. Senate having to show up in person in 2023, seriously, the Senate could be Zooming, and then we'd never know if Ted Cruz was wearing pants. And by the way, for those that complain about what senators are wearing, there's actually a photo of Ted Cruz in the hallway rocking shorts and a sweatshirt because you don't always have to wear a suit to serve as a senator, right? Do I think we should relax a dress code for the U.S. Senate or the, or the House of Representatives? No, of course not. I think there should be some sort of decorum and nobility to the office. I, I, I totally abide by that. But I also realized that, dude, there were times that FDR couldn't probably stand up during the national anthem. And, and were we going to say something about that? No, you can't say it. There are special circumstances that we just have to roll with it. My God, we're Americans. We're supposed to be the most innovative people on the planet. Can we not just roll with it occasionally? This just goes back to one of my premises. Ever since uh, inflation tamped down, got a little bit more normal, the economy kept humming along, man, there's just not enough for them to grouse about, so they got to come up with flimsy bullshit. And this is the flimsiest of flimsy bullshit to be spending so much energy being outraged about. The right is spending all this time harping about what John Fetterman does or doesn't wear in the Senate chamber, and it's been crickets about Lauren Boebert 
getting all handsy in the crotch with her first date friend while he gets handsy in the boobs on their first date while she's vaping in a theater where you clearly cannot vape and in proximity of a woman who's pregnant that asked her to stop. Not a word from the right about that. Well, you know what? I'll Again, i got to give Eric Erickson his due. He actually ripped Lauren Boebert a new one a few times via Twitter and on his on his show. So I'll give him that. But you're not hearing it from those in the House and Senate. Nope. No outrage whatsoever. Has there been a, an official admonishment? Has Kevin McCarthy decided to do anything about that? Nope. But holy sh**, y'all. John Fetterman's going to wear shorts and a hoodie when he comes in to vote. And we have to get apoplectic. Got to. Am I crazy about the way John Fetterman dresses? No, I think it looks kind of frumpy, but the guy just recovered from a stroke. What is Clarence Thomas' excuse for having all of the sh** that he owns be bought and paid for by billionaires who are influencing the outcomes of decisions he's making in the Supreme Court? There's something we should get hot and bothered about. More on show after this on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Broadcasting five days a week to make common sense common again. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. Like it or not, and a lot of folks on the right don't, electric vehicles are gaining a foothold, not just in this country, but the continent, hemisphere, and around the world. And there's going to be this awkward and uncomfortable transition as there was when we were going from blacksmith shops and horse and buggies to horseless carriages. And there was probably not as much acrimonious or at least hyperbolic, I would think, uh, acrimony from the pro-horse politician uh, of that uh, era when it comes to infrastructure spending when infrastructure spending was necessary for these horseless carriages to get around efficiently. So (laughs) Congressman Scott Perry and Pete Buttigieg, our Secretary of Transportation, clashed earlier today over the spending that goes into making the electric vehicle a little bit more accessible not just for the American family to purchase, but also to drive around in. And and then I've got to tell you a funny story that came out of my hometown of Grovetown, Georgia, just a few days ago, and the right's been having a field day with it, and I'm going to turn the tables on them. First things first, here's Representative Perry and Secretary Buttigieg going back and forth. This is the government funding the destruction of our own automotive industry, and I hope you know that approximately two-thirds of EV owners make over $100,000 a year. My bosses don't make that. Okay, but let's go back again to the horse and buggy versus horseless carriage. Only wealthy people were originally buying the automobile because they, too, were the only ones that could afford it. I don't know if you can justify or how you justify forcing my constituents to pay for EVs and EV infrastructure for coastal elites and wealthy people, but somehow you do. Well, I need to point out that wealthy people were specifically excluded from the Inflation Reduction Act. Well, I just gave you the number. Do you dispute that two-thirds of EV owners are owned by people over 100,000, that make over 100,000? Sure, because the the first EVs, of course, were... Do you dispute that? 
Uh, I no, mean, but that number is going down. Those are the facts. It doesn't matter if they're going down now. My, the folks that I represent can't afford them today, sir. It why does. were you against cutting their costs? All these factors. I'm not against cutting their costs. The market should do it. But you want the, the government, you want my taxpayers to pay to cut the cost, which isn't cutting the if cost. You of the view, subsidizing the cost. Congressman, Sir, if you were of the view, respectfully, Congressman, if you were of the view that there should be no subsidy to propulsion vehicles that are you against oil and gas mean that for every that oil EV sold, sir, at a loss, that the cost of the, as my, as my colleague on the other side, the gas-guzzling pickup truck is higher now to pay for the loss as you kill your administration and you in particular kill the auto industry. And I'll remind you, in 2008, after a financial crisis, mm -hmm. the federal government bailed out this industry. So while you're here today, will you commit and will you pledge to oppose any effort to bail out the auto industry after you force it into bankruptcy again? Will you do that today, sir? Congressman, I got started in politics when I guess the, answer is the Indiana no. I yield factory the was at risk of being shut down because an elected official in my state tried to block the administration from saving Chrysler. Mm. I got involved and stood with the UAW to save those jobs, and I'll always be with auto jobs being preserved. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Secretary, would you like to finish your statement? Right. Sure, thank you, and I'll try to be as concise as I can. There are some people who I suppose believe there should be no subsidies for anything involving transportation. And I assume in the spirit of philosophical consistency, they would be against subsidizing oil and gas, mm -hmm. as well as being against subsidizing Americans being able to afford an EV. Mm -hmm. There are others who believe that we should force Americans to be in the technology of the past forever. And then there's this administration which recognizes that the world is moving to EVs with or without us. And those EVs are either going to be made by Chinese workers Bingo. or they're going to be made by American workers. Yes. And we respect the UAW standing up at the dawn of a new chapter in the automotive industry that created my hometown to make sure that those are not just American jobs, but good paying American jobs. And then you have California Congressman Doug LaMalfa wanting to be publicly stupid about climate change? Listen to this exchange. I don't know the percentage of atmospheric gases. You don't know the percent of the atmosphere. What I can tell you is that climate change is real. We've got to do something about it. Yeah, this one's and called Autumn, been... sir. So I'm sorry? This one's called Autumn right now. So, yeah. Oh, my God. I'm sorry, I couldn't make out what you said, sir. This climate change right now is called Autumn, yes. Yeah, that's, that's the seasons changing, which mm. respectively is not the same thing as the climate changing. And... As somebody who is hoping to retire in the 2050s and who has kids who will be old enough to ask me as they're getting to their 30s whether we did enough to deal with climate change or whether we just did what was convenient, I take that really seriously. Reclaiming my time. Thank you, Mr. Secretary. The trillions and trillions we're going to cost our kids to chase a tiny percentage of CO2 will bankrupt all of us and bankrupt our economy and ship it to China for all the other reasons. So I yield back, Mr. The gentleman's time has expired. The chair now recognizes the gentleman from California, Mr. Huffman. Mr. Secretary, it's good to see you. You can see that I, I serve here in Congress with some of the greatest minds of the 19th century. Thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you, sir. I appreciate that. I need to go donate to his re-election campaign. Who was that? Quick Google. That was Congressman Jared Huffman, Democrat from California. I'm going to send him some money. Get that guy re-elected. By the way, I don't know if you saw this. Katie Porter, speaking of California, has decided she's going to run for the U.S. Senate. Interesting. I am a little conflicted. Like, I love Katie Porter. 
Katie Ford, I, you know what? I loved Ellen DeGeneres too. I thought Ellen DeGeneres was the best thing since sliced bread when it comes to comedy and daytime television. And then you started hearing the horror stories from her staff and it's like, oh. And it's kind of the same thing with Katie Porter, right? Like I love Katie Porter's policies. I love the way she can sort of woman handle uh, combatants uh, in, in uh, House committee hearings and how she always has visual diagrams to explain away, like in simple terms. I love the way she's able to speak on kitchen table topics uh, in, in a kitchen table vernacular. But then you hear stories from her staff about how she is in the office and I want to like Katie Porter. I really do. I want to see. I want to see. You know that that sort of politician from the left succeed because I, I think she's got a, a a strong strain of populism. But Katie, please please tell me these stories aren't true. Please tell me that you're, if they are even remotely somewhat true. There's been some self introspection and some work on your part to better yourself so that this no longer becomes a problem because. What is Ellen DeGeneres doing anymore? I mean, I'm sure she's just sitting at home counting her money, but we could use her humor. We could use you in the Senate chamber. I dare I, I was even like four years ago saying that Katie Porter, she should run for president. I am saying, however, Pete Buttigieg should be running for president sometime soon. I, I have to think, right? 2028, if not the the shadow campaign for 2024. I mean, a, a Newsom Buttigieg ticket, if, and I know I'm going to get hate mail. You're overlooking Kamala Harris. I'm trying not to, but it, where is she? And that's not necessarily even her fault. That's not necessarily even something she is to blame for, necessarily. She is part of an administration, and the administration, she serves at the pleasure of the President of the United States, right? I mean, I totally get it. But going back to Congressman Scott Perry's yell over the man who's trying to answer questions you're lobbing at him, you know, we're sitting here worrying about Senate dress codes. Can we talk about some decorum? Like, if you ask somebody a question, shut up. Shut the f*** up and let them answer. Instead of using these opportunities to produce these inane rants that just wind up on YouTube for us to Google, where I can see from the left and from the right, there are just varying perspectives on who owned who. Somebody owns so-and-so, watch. I mean, but we're talking about the destruction of the American auto industry? Democrats saved the auto industry, and I want to thank Congressman Perry for reminding us of that in 2008. That's right. That was, actually, it wasn't 2008. It was after 2008. That wasn't the Republicans that did so. In fact, there were many Americans on the right in office who were hand-wringing about us bailing out the auto industry. Why are we spending that kind of money? Let people lose their jobs. This is Obama's presidency, blah, blah, blah. And he saved the auto industry. So thank you, Congressman Perry, for reminding us that it was the left that saved the auto industry. Hmm. I'm sure that wasn't the intention, but he did remind us. But it's also not exactly as if the Biden administration or Biden-Harris 2024 are forcing automakers to innovate. They're actually just encouraging and 
enhance it, as is here in the state of Georgia. We have a Republican governor. Scott Perry, would you like to speak to uh, Governor Brian Kemp and the state of Georgia throwing tens of millions of dollars, hundreds maybe, in incentives for Kia and Hyundai and all the other electric vehicle manufacturers and all the component manufacturers that will, of course, envelop them in surrounding uh, manufacturing plants. Would, would you like to speak to Georgia's uh, enhancing the EV automaking industry here in these United States? I mean, personally, I think it's actually a good thing if there is a little federal nudge for the automakers to innovate to electric vehicles, not just for climatological reasons, but I think that should be the principal driver after all, but because that's what consumers overwhelmingly want. Whether they can or can't afford it yet is one thing, but they do want it. I mean, what if I told you that four in 10 Americans would like to purchase an electric vehicle? And what do you think that was 10 years ago? 20 years ago? Well, there weren't many on the road at the time. And I, I was married to someone who hated Toyotas and just hated Priuses. I don't know why. I think it was just because it was easy for Southerns and conservatives to just rip on Prius owners because well, they were probably liberal, right? Yeah, Pew Research. About four in 10 Americans, 38% say they're very or somewhat likely to seriously consider an electric vehicle for their next vehicle purchase, according to a recent... Pew Research Survey. When did this come out? Uh, July of this year. Hell yeah. Automakers better be on that bump. They better be ready to go with it, right? And if they're not, then is it not a good thing that the federal government is kind of pointing them in that direction? Yes. Okay, I got to play this. From my hometown of Grovetown, Georgia, this is a 911 call. Columbia County 911. Hi, I'm calling because I'm in the Grovetown Walmart at the charging station. And there's literally a non-electric car that is taking up the space who says they're holding the space for somebody else, and it's holding up a whole bunch of people who need to charge their cars. All right, here at the Walmart on Center Way. Um, the one in Grovetown that, that has an RVs in Okay, so here's the backstory to that. Uh, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm was doing a little bit of a road trip with a caravan of EVs to sort of, to sort of show, with reporters in tow, by the way, uh, how it's possible but rather difficult for those with electric vehicles to road trip in the country and how there is a growing need for more charging stations. And the stop in Grovetown exemplified that. Okay, the small problem is someone in her caravan who drives a Corolla, I believe, uh, which was identified in the 911 call, parked the car, the gas-powered Corolla, in an EV spot so that Secretary Granholm and her entourage could come there and charge up to show the media that, they see, we can do this just off the interstate, and that Walmart is just off the interstate in Grovetown, Georgia. Unfortunately, again, it's, it's, it's not a good look when someone is using a gas-powered vehicle to block a charging station. And the right has had a field day with this for the last few days. Oh, this is... Yeah, coastal elites and uh, getting in the way of the American people. And no, you dolts. This shows exactly what Secretary Granholm and, by the way, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg and President Joe Biden has been saying all along. We got to have more investments in our infrastructure and in our renewable energy 
you put those two together, electric vehicles, which our very Republican governor here in the state of Georgia has doubled down on with investment money, even from from the federal level. Obviously, uh, Senators Ossoff and Warnock want to take some credit for some of that federal investment that comes to uh, some of that electric vehicle manufacturing here in the state. So obviously, there is a need (laughs) for more of it. And bless them, Republicans at the local and state and even federal level will show up to ribbon cuttings to take credit for that investment that they, of course, want to chortle about when something like what Secretary Granholm and her entourage tripped into in my hometown of Grovetown, Georgia. And when you listen to this 911, and by the way, I'll give you the full audio of that 911 from Fox News of all places in today's show notes at ronshowetl.com. When you listen to the lady calling, she doesn't know that this is a political situation. She's just calling 911, which I think is a bit extreme for that, but she's just calling because she's trying to get her car charged and there's some dolt who parked their gas-powered vehicle in the way. That's all. But thank you, Right Wing, for making the point for us. And can I also just say I'm grateful that wasn't my sister's voice I heard on the call? (laughs) More Ron Show after this. Welcome back to the Ron Show, final segment for Wednesday. And I want to hear from somebody. Some accolades here. Ron, congratulations. You haven't said one word about Cop City today. And I'm not going to. I mean, other than pointing out that I haven't said one word about Cop City. Sometimes I'm uh, rifling through articles and I bookmark things and then I forget to get back to them. And um, one I saw yesterday in the Washington Post was something I learned that I did not know before that really sort of angered me. And uh, I want to uh, congratulate, hat tip to reporter Anahad O'Connor at the Washington Post. This headline, many of today's unhealthy foods were brought to you by Big Tobacco. Good God. A new study suggests that tobacco companies who were skilled at marketing cigarettes used similar strategies to hook people on processed foods. It's not bad enough that Big Tobacco exacerbated our cancer battle in these United States when it came to, obviously, lung cancer. But they were also behind the scenes owning and marketing for a lot of the junk food that also causes the American public perpetual health maladies. Uh, The article reads, For decades, tobacco companies hooked people on cigarettes by making their products more addictive. Remember Joe Cool, marketing, slick marketing, and of course, all of the additives put to the cigarettes to make them tougher to quit. Now, a new study suggests that tobacco companies may have used a similar strategy to hook people on processed foods. Well, of course they did. Salt and sugar is delicious. In the 1980s, tobacco giants Philip Morris and R.J. Reynolds acquired the major food companies Kraft, General Foods, and Nabisco, allowing tobacco firms to dominate America's food supply and reap billions in sales from popular brands such as, oh, this is going to hurt y'all, Oreo cookies, Kraft macaroni and cheese, and Lunchables. I never cared about Lunchables. Like, I, I, I don't know, there's something about Lunchables just never really appealed to me. Tiny bites of crackers and meats and cheese. If you're not putting it on a plate and serving it to me from grandma's kitchen on a 
summer day, she doesn't feel like cooking. I don't feel like eating it. Anyway, by the 2000s, the article continues, the tobacco giants spun off their food companies and largely exited the food industry, but not before leaving a lasting legacy on the foods that we eat. The new research published in the journal Addiction focuses on the rise of, quote, hyperpalatable foods, which contain potent combinations of fat, sodium, sugar, and other delicious additives that can drive people to crave and overeat them. The addiction study found that in the decades when the tobacco giants owned the world's leading food companies, the foods that they sold were far more likely to be hyperpalatable than similar foods not owned by tobacco companies. Y'all smelling a, a class action lawsuit here? I mean, big tobacco already had to pay out handsomely. In the past 30 years, the article continues, hyperpalatable foods have spread rapidly into the food supply, coinciding with a surge in obesity and diet-related diseases. In America, the steepest increase in the prevalence of hyperpalatable foods occurred between 1988 and 2001, the era when Philip Morris and R.J. Reynolds owned the world's leading food companies. Even though the tobacco companies no longer own these food brands, researchers say the findings matter because many of the ultra-processed foods that we eat today were engineered by an industry that wrote the playbook on products that are highly palatable, addictive, and appealing to children. Can I just tell you, being a child of the 80s, I mean, I was 14 in 1988, and 27 in 2001. So from the years 14 to 27, there I was being affected by not only the marketing, but the ingredient alterations that made foods more addicting. I was never that kid who had abs. I still don't. I never, I, I don't know that I'll ever have abs. <laughs> and a lot of that is laziness and quite frankly, crunches hurt. But <laughs> Nestle crunches don't. Uh, <laughs> no, but what I was going to say was I, I was never that, you know, hyperly in shape kid. I grew up on pitchers of Kool-Aid with, of course, the, the cups full of sugar in the entire pitcher and the water and the product. But for 13 of my first 27 years, half of my existence, I was just as susceptible to wanting to buy a bag of Oreos or we'd have craft. We had craft macaroni and cheese all the time. Are you kidding me? That was easy to make. It was certainly easy for a 14 year old to make. And of course the uh, salt laden hot dogs we'd have, the, that would be the, the, the quick cheap meal, hot dogs, macaroni and cheese. So uh, we're all susceptible to this sort of stuff, right? This affects us all. And here we find we have, tobacco companies that had already been thumped with class action lawsuits because they not only hid from the general public their own research findings about cigarettes and lung cancer, but they also put in addictive additives to make their product more addictive than they would have been without them. Of course, to boost sales just as these same companies did with a lot of the food product that they owned, not for our benefit, but to enhance sales. 
Those companies are responsible for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of American deaths. And we're not outraged about this. And we should be. I gotta go run a mile now because I feel like I need to do some extra cardio to work off that 13 years of crap they were feeding me. That's gonna do it for The Ron Show. Back tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, and afterwards, wherever you podcast. Get more at ronshowatl.com.